The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by Medtronic. Medtronic is dedicated to the pursuit of life-transforming health tech. From AI to robotics and beyond, we're reinventing what's possible, and we're just getting started. Visit Medtronic.com to learn more. LinkedIn presents. The prevailing beliefs, attitudes, and power structures at any place and point in time shape the way we view and treat mental illness. For Black Americans, this means that for many decades, white physicians and administrators at hospitals viewed them as inferior and different. Welcome back to the next Big Idea Daily. I'm your host, Michael Kovnett, and during this Black History Month, it's worth reflecting on some of the lesser-known stories from our country's past. While most of us are familiar with the broad outlines of America's legacy of slavery and the struggle for civil rights, some of the more disturbing chapters of that history have been buried until recently. Among those is the story of Maryland's Crownsville Hospital, which was founded as the Hospital for the Negro Insane in 1911. The grim tale of Crownsville is told in the new book, Madness, Race and Insanity in a Jim Crow Asylum by Antonia Hilton. Antonia is a Peabody and Emmy Award-winning journalist at NBC News reporting on politics and civil rights and the co-host of the podcast, South Lake and Grapevine. While her book is a work of history, it also contains insights about mental health, innovation, and other topics. Antonia joins us now to share some of those insights. History and culture shape mental health. Psychiatry, like every field of medicine, did not develop in a vacuum. The prevailing beliefs, attitudes, and power structures at any place and point in time shape the way we view and treat mental illness. For Black Americans, this means that for many decades, white physicians and administrators at hospitals viewed them as inferior and different. In the mid-19th century, one physician and researcher named Samuel Cartwright came up with a mental disorder he called drapetomania, used to describe Black people who tried to flee the control of their masters. He and many of his colleagues believed Black people were lazy, immoral, and unable to mentally withstand the responsibility of being free. Rarely did doctors consider the role that enslavement might have played in those patients' suffering. These attitudes directly influenced psychiatric practice and the services made available or unavailable to certain communities. The belief that Black people's mental well-being required constant hard labor led doctors to segregate white and Black patients into separate wards or hospitals and subject Black patients to more forced labor and agricultural work at those same hospitals than white patients. Crownsville Hospital, originally called Maryland's Hospital for the Negro Insane, was one such institution. In Madness, I tell the unbelievable story of the very first patients committed to the hospital. They were the only patients ever forced to do the backbreaking work of building their own asylum from the ground up. Outsiders drive innovation. Outsiders are often the only people who can see an institution like a sprawling hospital for what it truly is. The arrival of just one or two people who have a different vision and who are less afraid of change, can have the power to reset the course of history. For decades, Crownsville Hospital was led by a man named Dr. Robert Winterode, the same physician and superintendent who was present for its founding in 1911. Patients and families connected to the hospital 
often feared and despised him for forcing the patients to work, allowing the hospital's conditions to deteriorate, and for refusing to hire any non-white people as employees. But in the 1940s, a Jewish doctor and Holocaust survivor by the name of Dr. Jacob Morgenstern arrives. Having narrowly escaped the Nazis, Dr. Morgenstern became extremely uncomfortable with the antebellum and racist practices of the hospital. He began to invite patients to spend time with his family and fight for new medications and therapies. He eventually took over as Crownsville's leader. It was his outsider status, his lack of reverence for Southern tradition and lack of fear of the political elite in Maryland, that roused him to desegregate the hospital and onboard Black employees for the first time. He developed a friendship and alliance with a Black doctor named Vernon Sparks, who then created a prestigious training pipeline for aspiring psychologists and psychiatrists. To this day, many Black doctors in Maryland credit Sparks as an inspiration and say they were able to benefit from the programs he created. For some, deinstitutionalization was a reinstitutionalization. When we talk about deinstitutionalization or the shuttering of asylums and mental hospitals around the country, we often think of a very simple story. That story goes something like this. Americans learned about the horrors going on inside the asylums that were once all over the country, and our increased empathy and understanding for people living with mental illness combined with the arrival of new medications in the 1950s and 1960s, rendered these institutions unnecessary. The truth is much more complicated than that, especially in communities of color. At the very same moment that our culture became more sympathetic to people living with mental or emotional challenges, it also began to invest in an expanded criminal justice system that tended to target poor people and communities of color. During this period in the second half of the 20th century, doctors at Crownsville observed and reported that their patients were increasingly likely to land in jail or prison after leaving the hospital. So while some patients benefited from a new ethos of care and compassion, others were quickly reinstitutionalized elsewhere. All of these shifts are connected. Community is the key to recovery. Medication and therapy alone often aren't enough to heal mental suffering. People desperately need community. In my decade of research and interviews with patients and practitioners, I've found a clear pattern. The patients who have made the most powerful recoveries have been surrounded by people and neighbors who love them unconditionally and show up for them consistently. This is one of the most glaring challenges facing our mental health care system today— Although our politicians once promised that they would build community mental health centers and clinics in every state, very few of those sites have materialized. Dr. Tammy Benton, psychiatrist-in-chief at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, once told me that the children she serves live with extreme uncertainty and consistently report that they believe our society is failing them. According to her research, Less than half of Black children who come to emergency rooms in the midst of a mental health crisis are able to connect to ongoing care and support after the visit. This absence of community, safety, and dependability is driving an increase in youth suicides. Many doctors believe it is jeopardizing our collective future. Talk or write about your grief. This one is a little personal. But one of the greatest lessons of madness is this. 
Pain demands your attention, and one way or another, it will catch up with you. The more we talk about depression, anxiety, and grief, the easier it is to find a supportive community and move forward. It can save lives. The same way many of us want to know our family history of cancer or diabetes, we need to know our family histories of mental illness. There is still so much about the origin and biological causes of mental illness that doctors do not know. What they do know is that early detection and early intervention are the best tools we have. Early detection is only possible when families release stigma and talk. As I was writing Madness, I helped take care of a loved one who was in the midst of a psychiatric crisis. We would go on walks together, and they would tell me everything they were going through. I did my best, in turn, to help them communicate with doctors. I also shared my reporting with them and incorporated their advice and insights. These walks and visits helped us weather the long storm and ultimately helped our family find the other side. Thank you, Antonio. Okay, listeners, that's it for today. Come on back tomorrow. We'll have some more big ideas for you. Remember to check out our next Big Idea app for thousands of insights from the best nonfiction. I'm Michael Kavnat. See you tomorrow.